I think reality does bite. But I think what I see around me that's really pervasive in our culture, which is what I call magical thinking, a term I have borrowed, is even worse. Let's look at reality. Let's bring you some content that is meaningful, truthful, as much as we don't want to face it and address these issues because there is a solution for everything. There's no magic. Everything is hard work, but there is a solution. And we're hoping that this show brings you some of that content so you can make better, well-informed decisions and have an understanding of how addiction fits into our social milieu and what we can all do about it together as a culture, as a nation, as a society. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, today we are having a, another very special episode. We are continuing our interview with David Duranian. Duranian, did I uh, Correct. slaughter that Duranian? Basically, what we did was we went through Dave's entire life up to a certain point, in particular when he was about to go into the state penitentiary system. And basically, what we're trying to do here is really dig out Dave's entire life, the things he's had to go through, his interaction with the penal system, substance abuse, and really a remarkable, wonderful bounce back about how he's doing now and he's actually working in the addiction industry. Uh, my name is Dr. B. This is Reality Bites with Dr. B. Uh, hi, Dave. How are you? I'm doing good today. Thank you, Dr. B, for having me here again. Thank you for coming back. It's awesome that you came back. Uh, like I said, it's been a couple of weeks. I'm going to very rapidly talk about where we're at right now, where we left off. Basically, we went through your whole life. And to sum it up, and please watch the other show, the original episode, to follow up exactly what happened. But to sum it up, uh, Dave basically grew up in Los Angeles. A lot of family strife, social strife, personal strife. And there was crime involved in that. There was a lot of uh, uh, substance abuse involved in that. Uh, and we are now at a point, I believe we're talking about 1988, and you're just getting sentenced for a longer stint in state prison. Correct. Correct? Correct. Okay. And this was for, what is the, if, if you can share with us, and I know there's some things you don't want to talk about. And before we go any further, I know that after the show we talked and you told me, because I know you well, we work together, you're our lead counselor at our uh, non profit program that we are both affiliated with. Uh, you talked about that the show brought out a lot of feelings for you. Correct. And it was, I don't I, I, whether it was negative, positive, but I know it was difficult. Will you speak to that and then we'll get back into the story sure. and move sure forward? Sure, I will, Dr. B. So what it brought up for me was um, I've done, done a lot of work on myself already in the past, my therapists and my counselors and stuff like that. And so when I had to resurface all that back up, it kind of bring up, brought up the child again, started bringing up some sad things, you know, because when I overlooked everything, you know, with my mom, my mom tr struggled with her own alcoholism, and, you know, my relationship with her is totally different today, but back then it was just tough for her, um, raising all of us by herself, but, you know, at the same time being an alcoholic. But it brought up a lot of feelings for me, you know, just like as a child, because it wasn't really that good memories as a child. Um, I try to base things on positive memories, and I just talked to my mother the other day, and we were just talking about one good positive memory it was in Seal Beach when she just got out of jail. It was one day she was sober, and I remember that specifically. In that moment, it meant a lot to me. But there was just 
my mom struggled a lot, and I understand her now better, you know. Um, but it just brought up a lot of feelings, just confusion from when I was a kid. I didn't know how to, to act in society, didn't know how to just in general be, just be me, be okay with me. Um, it was just a lot of problems, but I think it was good that we did that because I needed to resurface that up a little bit, um, get a better understanding. It actually helped me too. Yeah? Yeah. Help you work through some stuff out? It just helped me just to remember a little bit, you know what I mean? Like, I, it makes me grateful for where I'm at today. You know, it's interesting you just said that it made you bring up this memory of your mother. Mm -hmm. A good day. She got out of jail. She was sober. Well, a lot of people don't know it, and I don't talk about it too often just because of the role I take mm -hmm. as, as a health care provider. But, uh, uh, and I feel like I should be invincible, untouchable, and always perfect. And... I don't aim to do that in any pretentious way, but Correct. I want to be there for my patients, my uh, the kids. But what you just said about the day your mother coming out of jail, and it was a positive day. My father died when I was very young, five or six. Uh, and uh, there was, and it's even difficult for me to say it on this, um, but uh, you know, there was substance, a lot of substance abuse. And the days, and I didn't forget my father I haven't forgotten my father, but I, I've thought about my father daily, probably till the age of 30, okay? I actually thought about, and and you're always thinking about, well, what if this, what if that? But when I was, times that I think about him, I think about the few positive Correct. days. Correct. That's what we lean on. You know, it's, it's, it's healthier that way than to lean on the negative stuff. Um, because I knew who the true person was in my mom. My mom's actually a beautiful person, but she had a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And her upbringing was different than mine too. She was adopted and she went through the foster homes and worked in the cotton fields. Um, she went through a lot of problems in foster homes with sexual abuse and she told me about it. So it's uh, sort of this cycle repeating itself. And I think if I had an opportunity to interview a thousand people like Dave, that are just wonderful people, they're intelligent, they're good-natured, they have a good moral composition, and uh, these social issues create barriers for our individual growth, and yet you can overcome them in many positive ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's important here. Let's get back into the story, Dave. I think we were at sentencing, and you had just gotten in trouble. Uh, let's. Can you just slightly recap and put us back into where we're at? Sure. And so um, <clears throat> I was put in L.A. County Jail, and I had been um, going back and forth to court, incarceration. I was probably maybe 110 pounds only. 18 years old? Yeah. I was very um, skinny, um, meth use, a heavy meth user. Um, I was very tiny. Um, the bottom line is I got in there in the county jail, and I was very scared because of my size and my uh, my race um, majority was Latinos and African Americans and it was just we were the minorities and they, they were just we, there was fights every day uh, constantly having to watch your back um, you know the meals were and all that but constantly going back and forth worrying about the cops beating me up too because if you just made one little mistake um, LA County Jail was different in the 80s uh, they would Smash you with a flashlight, and then happened all the time to the Latinos, African Americans, and Caucasians. 
uh, the, the others, all of us. So it was a constant fear um, from the minute I went in there. But you know, it was going back through the Norwalk Court Superior Courthouse. I remember first time going there and them telling me how much time I was looking at. But I smelt, I smelt the years, the, the fear in the in the holding cell down. It was like a dungeon. Um, scared the hell out of me. Fascinating. Uh, this was so you're going back and forth in court. Mm -hmm. You're in county jail, Los Angeles County Jail. Correct. It's a pretty difficult place, and you're in a holding cell, about to go back into court. There's other folks in the same cell with you. Uh, I know you've had a lot of methamphetamine use up mm -hmm. to this point, a lot of criminal activity. Uh, and what was the years that they told you you would be looking at potentially? I was looking at life. How did that? This was the first time you actually was, were told that. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think of asking? You're a pretty bright guy, but I know at that age we're in La La Land at times. Did you ever think of what the hell's going? I mean, you are now in the adult criminal system, and what I see is an 18-year-old that basically is looking for nurturing, guidance, male leadership role in his personal life, nurturing role of a mother in his personal life love and not in a sexual kind of way but true platonic love Correct. and all of a sudden here you are so you're a child as far as i'm concerned and here you are in adult jail and they're telling you all of a sudden you're looking at a hundred years and you're in the holding cell and what do you explain more to me what you mean i'm glad you, you said that yeah. i'm glad you said that dr b because at that time you said it right i was a child at the time um you know the fact that i'd been using meth at a younger age um, Maturity-wise, I did not grow. I was very uh, immature. I didn't know the rules of the courts. I didn't understand any of this. All I know is when they offered me that much time, um, I had a breakdown. I pretty much had a breakdown. I, didn't, I was lost. I didn't have no communication skills. I had no social skills. I didn't know how to fend for myself. I didn't. Uh, I just didn't know how to, to um, what pro proper decision to make. Um, I had a, a public uh, defender, um, but basically he was just not doing much for me. Um, didn't ask me questions, just said, this is what you're, they're offering you. And I said, no, and they made me come back. Um, this went on for a long time. And um, finally, I got a state-appointed attorney because of um, my history. I had a probation, they do like a probation officer hearing thing. And they came and they said, he needs a state-appointed attorney. It's not fair. Um, I did get a state appointed attorney and he's basically the one after a, a year and two months got me the deal. Year and two months, county jail, mm -hmm. going back and forth with the public defense. This is that day that they told you or this mm -hmm. is your... The first day they told me is when they told me how much time I was looking at and I, am, I almost lost it. Uh, um, but they kept going, staying with the same amount of time until I got the state appointed attorney. Now, uh, clarify uh the difference here so both of them are dealing with state laws the public defender at the local jurisdiction which would be the county now you're saying well they went ahead and gave me a state appointed attorney correct a state appointed criminal attorney what well, he's got a little bit more tools he's a little more heavy-handed uh, he, he's got more time to spend on your case uh, and and tell me why they said, hey, you're going to get a state-appointed uh, attorney. Is it because what you were looking at was so heavy? Correct. Okay. Not so, only that, but my history of, of being in and out of uh, juvenile halls, uh, placement, um, incarceration as a, as a juvenile. Um, not only that, but, you know, just my drug history at a young age. 
Um, but I want to explain something about the state appointed attorney. It's not so much the state appointed attorney. It's just that guy, me, he, I knew he cared. He really did care. And he was going to be a lawyer himself. He wasn't going to be a DA or anything. A he was going to stay as a lawyer. Correct. And the, the thing with the public defenders, majority of the time, are going to be the DA. That's what they're working and striving for. Um, it's, it's all in the same system. Um, but I just felt the difference with the state appointed attorney. He fought. And that's where, what I liked about him a lot. And I never, I'll never forget him. Now, I, I'm going to digress and put in my own uh, uh, interjection here. If I understand it correctly, and you can tell me now, uh, as I talk to people now, I ask them, well, why don't you get a public defender? They actually bill you for that. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So, unless, you know, this could be my, and I'm going to come back to this, how the whole system is basically built up and uh, to eat us up. Uh, my understanding is public defend, uh, public appointed defense attorney, if you can't afford one and these guys are actually a lot of them are really good guys their caseloads are insane mm -hmm. they're underpaid and I thought it was supposed to be public appointed that means the public pays for it so what is this thing about you get the bill at the end and I'm gonna come back to this because uh, I, I think to see the whole enchilada uh, I'm gonna come back to this at some point yeah what is this thing about you getting a bill at the end well, basically, you get the court fees, you get the uh, the public defender fee, uh, and when you go inside incarceration, and about five years down the line is when they started the new law where they charged you for that, even they backtracked on you. And so anytime your family would send you money, they would keep 45% of it towards your restitution for that. So that, that This has always been the case? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if people know that. I think, again, that's kind of insane. And um, I'm not going to touch too much upon it now, but I think it's something to keep in mind as we build this thesis of a paradigm of we are suffering from a social pathology and addiction is a symptom of it. And this social pathology, and if you look at the prison system, I think we'll start to see that it leads to isolation, existential angst, and loneliness. And you know what? People that are not happy don't commit suicide. People that don't suffer from these issues do not turn to drugs. People, and, and I mean that in a, take it with a grain of salt, okay? People that are come up whole do not suffer from anxiety, depression, substance abuse, and a whole host of other things that really defines our current culture and generations right now. And I want to get, you know, the whole point here is to build up to that. Dave, tell me how that whole year was. Was it rough in uh, L.A. County? It was very rough, um, but I was sobering up a little bit. Um, I noticed um, the fact that I looked really young, they put me in a, a dorm called the Softies because I looked like I was really young for my age. Um, so they put me in, like, basically to protect me for the first uh, year, and it's called Softies, and it was basically at the HOJJ, which is the Hall of Justice Jail, the old county jail, you know what I mean? And so I was there with the, um, the Million Dollar Bell and the murder roll, but I was separate, segregated from them. Um, so it was a little bit safer. I'm only like 110 pounds when I go in, so I mean, it's, it's different, you know? Um, but once I'm in the softy uh, dorm, I'm basically, I'm doing a lot of exercise. I'm actually working out a lot and um, taking care of myself, self-care. How were you digesting that you're looking at a long stretch here? I didn't know how to digest. It was coming out in anger.
it was coming out in a lot of anger, um, a lot of fear, just coming out. Um, I wrote a lot of letters to the judge. I wrote a lot of letters to, you know, my family. Um, just please, someone help me. Um, I was reaching out to people just to help me. I didn't have no out outlet to, it was just coming out in anger. Any visitations were you allowed? Um, uh, my girlfriend at the time was giving me visitations. And how often were they? She would come every two weeks to visit me. Yeah. And no, not much substance abuse that uh, first year, huh? No. Just um, once in a while we would make some Pruno. We'd drink in there. Um, <laughs> didn't do much because the county jail didn't have that good of Pruno. All we right. didn't have, yeah. But it was just something. Okay. So tell us about, uh, so you went in, uh, did you go to trial or did you do a... a I wanted to go to trial. <clears throat> they came at me with a deal, so it was either, if I would have taken it to trial, I would have got life. You think so? If I would have been convicted, oh yeah, definitely. That's the way it's set up. That's how they bargain you. They bargain you by, uh, they want a conviction. So they bargain you with, if you don't take this deal, we're going to give you their life sentence. That's what, the, what the, they do. And so... Meaning we're going to try to get life if you get a conviction. If you take it to conviction, they get mad because you're taking, you're making them work harder. So now the fact that you, they're going to give you the max no matter what. That's how they do it. So there is no critical thinking or rational approach in terms of crime and punishment here. You know, what does this guy really deserve? Uh, uh, if he's going to waste our time by going to trial, then we're going to try and punish him by getting the maximum sentence. Mm -hmm. So let us try and push him off of that. By so, so, so there's no really, like I said, there's no moral or ethical component of mm -hmm. this calculus as they go through this system. Correct. And I'm not trying to blame the individuals, but again, we all suffer from, I think, uh, the system that we're in. So... Tell us what happened. Yeah, there, there was a deal, and then uh, go, go from there, and I'll uh, interject. So, the, so I was uh, sentenced to state prison. Um, within the within two weeks, I was uh, taken to, to Hatchby. What was the deal? And what? Thirty-five. Thirty-five years. Mm -hmm. And how did you digest that? Um, the fact that I didn't have life made a difference. Really? Yeah. Thirty-five years. Was there? A, did they tell you you're up for parole in a certain amount of time? No, they automatically tell you you're going to be doing three years of parole once you get out. Uh, when you get sentenced, they tell you all the, uh, the sentencing. Basically, this is what's going to happen. This is how much you owe in restitution. You're going to be on three years parole. No guns. You no, to, I meant when are you up for parole? Uh, I it was. It, it's actually depending on how your behavior is while you're in there. So I. Well, I was supposed to get off the parole in 2000. When, is the, when you get that 35 years, I mean, do they tell you, hey, in 10 years you can go? No, no. It's, not, it's only unless you have life. That's when, you know, the parole board does that, separate from the courts. The courts has nothing to do with, with the outcome, the date, or anything. It's when you go in front of the parole so board. So you just, when, they don't tell you when you get to go in front of the parole? Mm -mm. Does okay. No. You really? Get, you, know, you have to file paperwork to do all that. It's different. It's like you have to be, you have to go through a protocol once you get into the penitentiary. Um, you have a caseworker in there. Pro, it's a, another pro officer, but basically you have to file. And if you get any 115s, basically you're going to get denied. 115 is like a disciplinary action. Like if you get in a fight or you get caught making alcohol or smoking drugs, whatever. Okay. So you got that 35 and you said you were just happy that you didn't think that, hey, I'm going to be 55 years old if this thing goes on. I mean, you were just sort of relieved that you are not getting life. Correct. Not only that, but I was leaving L.A. County Jail. 
and 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 that made you happy because oh yeah because it's LA County Jail in in is it's tough it's one of the toughest things to deal with especially in the eighties LA County Jail if you can survive LA County Jail you can survive anything really yeah it wasn't just so much the inmates you had to worry about it was the uh, the officers at the time it was really bad this is the same time you know like nineteen ninety two and I mean situation broadening king that's the kind of things we dealt with back then it was different you know times have changed it's a lot healthier okay so tell us so you got the tell us what happened then you said you were being shipped upstate or something correct i went to tehachapi uh state prison okay for Um, those of you that don't know tehachapi it's maybe a couple hours north of los angeles it's central california uh it's i believe in kern county uh, is that it's, where it is, or is it Fresno County? No, it's County? a little bit farther out um, past Kern County. Kern County is uh, it's like Delano. Okay. All right, so it's a little further out than Kern County, and it's a state prison, which I actually used to deal with a lot of the inmates that would come in to a hospital that I worked at uh, for uh, many years. So I'm very familiar with that prison system, the parole officers, and uh, many of the inmates that would come in for traumas, overdoses, what they call kites, which would be uh, forms of communication that would uh, be transmitted rectally from one inmate to another. So, so you got shipped up to Tehachapi. Tell us, uh, take it from there, wherever you want to. So I get to Tehachapi Prison, and um, you know, basically it's it's very pol- political. Um, you got to go with your own race. Um, now, do you mind telling us what your actual race is? I don't know if we've touched that. Yeah, I'm uh, half Armenian, half Irish. So what kind of a race would you go with when you well, get up there? Because your own race, what are you going to find? One other guy if you're lucky well, and I don't you're think... Either, you're either going to go with the blacks, Mexicans, or whites. Or you're going to go with the others. And so I was, didn't want to choose nothing. You know, I didn't... Uh, the Mexicans would come up to me, Hey, man, you know, we know your brother, you know, come kick it with us. I'm, I'm good. Um, I fought them every day of my life. No, I'm good. Um, but I eventually just joined the white gang. Why did you make that choice? Um, because um, stupidity at that time, just, just stupidity. You know, I, I I had a lot of issues with Latino Americans at that time because I, they they beat me up every day when I was growing up. Okay. Now tell us about get a little more myopic in uh, the story here about going upstate processing. Uh, Tell me what that was like. Tell me uh, what what was going on. And I'm just curious. And I there, was, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear. But, you know, at that time, I'm not going to tell you there was a lot of fear. I'm holding it all inside. And, um, you know, when I first get there, uh, first thing I see is this, this uh, CO looks like Smokey the, Smokey the Bear. He's got a hat on. And he just looked, and I could smell the earth. And it, it smelled good because I remember I was in, locked up in L.A. County. It smells like dirt yeah. the whole time. But Concrete. I get to Tehachapi. It smells beautiful. It's snowing. And he's smoking a cigarette. I'm like, I am home. You know, that's how I felt at the time. It was better than being in L.A. County Jail. It was dungeon. L.A. County Jail was depressing, very depressing. It smelled like feces, like urine. It was just bad. But to get to Tehachapi was just totally different. But the way the system was designed in prison is just basically move here, 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 here. You keep moving. You know, they constantly move you. Um, take your CDC picture, which I have E65397. Um you hold your thing up, and it's a little boy just holding a, a CDC number. Uh, it was interesting, but, you know, the food was a little bit better. Uh, they gave me a cell. You go into reception first for the first 60 days until they place you into the right 
position for your your um, your your crimes, your points, and everything. Go by points, how many points you have. Um, actually, I started having a little bit of fun in there, you know, when I went in there because um, I was like a follower. And what I mean by a follower is like I just was looking for a, a male figure, and there's a lot of guys in there that are um, like 45, 50 years old. I looked up to them. I really did look up to them because. Um, they treated me good, you know, hey, you want some coffee, you know, here's some uh, care package, some soups. Um, they took me under their wing, um, kind of protected me. No sexual, nothing like that. It was just, you know, I did whatever they asked me to do. Like, you know, we got into certain fights, we got into certain things. But I just looked at them because I never had a male role model. You're essentially, your expression after all of this and going into state prison for 35 years the expression of this young man in prison is the same thing of the last 18 years which mm -hmm. he lacked. Correct. Correct. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And if it was there in the first place, would you be in that system? Um, um, and that's neither here or there, but it's important for the future, I think, for our children, your ki kids, my kids. Uh, uh, so, so at first you were uh, getting along okay, huh? Good. I didn't. I didn't make no problems when I was in um, prison. Um, you got to remember something. I'm still I'm coming off of drugs. I'm starting to feel better about myself a little bit physically, not emotionally, but physically. I'm starting to look a little bit thicker. I'm starting to look. I'm eating more. I'm off drugs for a while now. A couple of years, huh? Yeah, and it, I'm, just, I'm starting to look pretty good. I'm getting up to like 125, 30 pounds. I feel confident a little bit more. Um, I feel like I'm a part of something now too. You know what I mean? Like the white gang and the it's part of something now because um, they're treating me good. Um, yeah, just it just I had a routine. That's what prison is like more like. You have to have a routine. If you're gonna have that many years, you better have a routine or you're gonna lose your mind. So I did have a routine. I would certain things I would do. I would you know work out certain time. Go to the prison yard. Um, I would go to the school. I would go to the library. Um, stuff like that. Uh, but I, I stayed busy. I stayed busy. Were those services available? How much, uh, so how much self-growth services were present at that time and available to you? How much resources, social resources within that system, or was it just the housing system? At it was that. that it was the housing system. So there, there was services outside of that. But if you were to attend like church or anything like that, you would be considered like weak. And the reason why, because a lot of people hide behind the church in prison. They call them Bible thumpers, and they hide behind the Bible because they got some stuff they don't want people to know about. So if we were to, inter to integrate with them, something's up. Uh, so there's rules. You know, we didn't go to church. We didn't go to NA meetings. We didn't go to AA meetings. It was basically we had a social circle, you know, just the, each race had its own social circle. Okay. And uh, that's just what it was, you know, and... You know, we, we made things happen in there, and we ate together. We did things together, and that's what it was. And I felt like I was accepted for once. Really? Yeah, I did. Even though it was negative, I still felt accepted. And you felt safe in some ways. I did. I did feel safe, but you still had to keep your eye on your... Sure. Yeah. So so there's a certain sense of safe, safety at the same time. There's a certain sense of hypervigilance that's 24 hours a day as well. Correct. Correct. Even when you're laying down and sleeping. You know, you always make sure you're keeping your, stay alert, you know what I mean? I'm a heavy sleeper now, but back then, no, I was always on my toes. Lights, you know what I mean? Because you don't know. Tell us this, uh, 
Okay, so that's your first, what, a year, a couple of years, three right. years? Tell me a significant change. And uh, I understand there are certain things you may not want to talk about. Yeah, that's uh, fine. So that's fine. So the reality is, so every two years, that if you've been, you know, if you get sentenced to a lot of years, every two years you get moved to a different prison. And the reason why is so you don't get comfortable. They don't want people to get comfortable because then the gangs start taking over. So they, they constantly move people every two years. And so I went to another prison, um, had to fit in with them again. It Which was, prison? I went to uh, Delano. Yeah. I went to Delano. Close and, by. Correct. It was right down the street, not far at all. I went to a level three yard. Which means what? Tell us those that don't know what a level three is. Okay, so level three is basically uh, you have one, two, and three, and four. Four is people that are doing life or have um, like hardcore gang affiliation and they just constantly get into trouble. Three is, and it's cell living. Three is cell living too, and it's just people that are doing okay. They just kind of don't do well in dorms. Two and one is like, two is basically dorm living. Maybe they have five years left, um, but level one is basically like people that are just in there for drug offenses. And 16 months with half, and they're getting out, they're just a turnaround. That's okay. what level one is. So you're on level three. Correct. At Delano. Correct. Cell, living cell, one roommate? Correct. A Romanian cellmate. Rom how interesting. Yeah, he was, he was, he scared me because he was in there for murder. Yeah. Yeah, he killed his wife and his, um, oh yeah, he told me everything about it. He, he was a great guy. Beautiful heart, but you know, he comes from the, the country, which was a hard struggle. He told me about his struggles over there. He helped me out a lot. He, he kind of taught me to grow up a little bit. He was just a really good guy. You know. This is at Delano. Yes. Uh, okay, so you got transferred there, and uh, uh, keep going. You, you tell me. You, this is your story, okay. and I just interject. Well, you know, so the prisons was pretty much um, kind of like a kid play game. Um, it just went on along with the years, just went along, and just kept going. Um, there was a lot of incidents where we had, like, child molesters in there. Uh, we would deal with them. You know, there was a few that I dealt with myself. Okay. Um and that's where the anger came out. The anger came out with that. I had no problem raising my hand when um, I heard someone had hurt a child or a woman. I had no problem hurting them. Um, but that's how I got to relieve my anger out. I looked for reasons to do that. Um, but that was when I look back, that's kind of brought up feelings for me. You know, just my own situation. Mm -hmm. um, after a while doing this to a few of them, I started getting a, a high out of it. You uh, did? Yeah. A little rush? Mm-hmm. The adrenaline. I mean, it was, it's best, one of the best adrenalines you can ever get. That's what scared me. You know, uh, I've been in a lot of prison riots, a uh, lot of riots. I've been in over maybe about 30 riots, uh, constantly getting pepper sprayed. Um, I got in a riot one time uh, where I got jumped by a few guys from Northern California. Um, they beat me with a baseball bat, and uh, that's how I ended up at San Joaquin Hospital. In yes, close work to where I used to work. Yeah, my wrist was just snapped in half, but uh, I didn't care. You know I mean, I was a soldier. I called myself a soldier, you know what I mean? I was a soldier. Yeah. When did, uh, or did the substance abuse creep back in? It did creep back in. It creeped back in maybe about six years down the line. Um, At Delano? Delano, and not only Delano, but all the rest of them after that. Um, basically, uh, I was doing a lot of uh, smoking pot and doing heroin. And I mind you, I never really did heroin before. Right. So t tell me about how that. Will you? Is that okay if I yeah, ask about fine, how that's that fine. came in? So the heroin was pretty heavy inside the penitentiary, 
Um, the first time he did heroin, I snorted it and uh, had it in a spoon. And, and I remember the best feeling I ever had. It was a warm sensation. I want to know about that, but why did you des decide to even do it? That, like, after all, we're, uh, this is about addiction at its heart. So Correct. why did you just, I know you had a meth history. Had you done cocaine? And you, oh, I've done I, cocaine. Yeah, you had done it all, yeah. it, but you hadn't done heroin. No. Why did you decide to do heroin in your mid-20s? I mean... Uh, and I can think of a million reasons, but I want you to tell me why. Well, the reason why, because I really, deep down inside, I was not comfortable with me. Um, and also, too, is I just, I just wanted to feel, I didn't want to have to feel what I was feeling. I wanted to escape prison. And I wanted to, you know, have to escape. I just still was not comfortable in my own skin. Even though I was physically looking good, there was still a lot of st stuff going on, turmoil, undealt, resolved trauma issues inside. So that's why I, I always look for ways to get high, get drunk, whatever. But when the heroin came, why not? You know, it's right there. Why not? You know, there's multiple reasons why. You know, maybe my cellie was doing it. Maybe I wanted to do it with him. But I didn't want to have to feel. I still didn't want to feel. And tell me, you were already telling me, tell me about after you did it, you really liked it. You tell me it was Oh, yeah. It was the greatest. It was a warming sensation that I had never had experienced in my life, and I felt for once I was calm and I felt okay, and I was just super laid back, and I was just like, "Wow, this is this is awesome, this is a great feeling." Yeah. Safe. Felt yeah. Safe? Yeah. Is that an okay word to use? I don't want to put words in your Correct. mouth. Correct. That's fine. Safe. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm going there again because I'm building my own thesis and all of this. There's a well-known sociologist within that world. His name is, I believe, Emil Durkheim, and uh, at the turn of the, at the turn of the 20th century, he's a French sociologist, social theory. His claim to fame, if I understand it correctly, one of his claims to fame is that uh, one of the pieces that he did, he did a study of the concept of suicide, and in that book, uh, it's well known. Not only did he do a great job at extracting that concept out and spitting it back out for understanding but it was i think one of the first formal analysis of a sociological concept that means he used statistics in simple terms the bottom line of that thesis if i understand it correctly for the most part was that when you look at suicide it's created when there is loneliness mm -hmm. and isolation okay it's a manifestation of isolation and when you look at groups and again remember he's applying statistical models epidemiological models in their infancy if i can use that term to sociology and then eventually we have the social sciences growth and so on and so on this is not about that but just to get the point across and you know well his conclusion was really suicide is an expression of loneliness for the individual for the individual mind and when you see it in individuals groups or social sectors where that individual isolation and loneliness is growing and there's a sense of hopelessness and no contact and no human bonds being formed you have suicide. That's one of the expressions of that. Now, as I develop this idea over the next, hopefully, uh, several episodes, my point is in today's 
social environment. And another guy, uh, Eric Fromm, writes extensively about this, and uh, and many people will know who he is, another social theorist. Uh, One of my points about that is that in our current social state and the corporate structure of our society, we create, we are creating more and more social isolation, which pops its head out in multiple diseases that we call anxiety, uh, depression, uh, suicide, and substance abuse. And Dave here, you are telling us that the first time you did heroin, you felt something very different. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to push that analogy. And if you disagree with me, uh, let me know. You you felt the warmth. You felt the comfort. You Correct. felt uh, I ease. felt relaxed. I just felt okay at the moment. You know, so when they look back and they think about it, my life's always been in turmoil. You talk about suicide. Oh, yeah. Uh, my life's always just never, I've never wanted to exist. But when I did the heroin, I felt... Never peace. wanted to exist. Yeah. What a way to put it. So I, I want you to take note of how you said that. You didn't say, I want to die. Good. You said, I don't want to exist. There is a difference. There's a huge, and I've been, it's funny, it's it's fascinating, you point, I. it's not that I want to kill myself. Correct. You didn't say that, you said, or I wanted to kill myself. You said, I don't want to exist. Correct. And and that implies so much, and there's, uh, that, 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 you know, the, the verbiage in that is so important for someone to see that I, it means so much. I exist, I want it to be different, I understand the angst of existence and my extinction Correct. is a scary thought. I don't want to kill myself, but I don't want to exist because the existence I'm in right now is not good. It never was good, except for that day when I went to uh, my mother right out of jail. That was the only day I ever felt that I did want to exist, but all the other times I never really did want to exist. For what? What reason? I didn't see no purpose. I didn't see no hope. What hope? What is hope? No, that's my truth. So all the running around, all the excitement, whether it's females, whether it's criminal activity, whether it's drugs, alcohol, the day you wanted to exist, there was no monetary gain. There was no fame. (coughs) There was no glory. There was no degree, uh, you know, educational degree. The day you wanted to exist is when there was a human bond. Correct. Correct. And the day you did heroin for the first time, you felt safe and warm. I felt like I could exist at the moment. It was like no anxiety, no... Um, I come from a generation where we didn't... There was no, the anxiety was not even out there. They didn't use the word anxiety. No, we didn't. I come from and the same background. you were considered weak. If you even said something like that, we weren't allowed to express what we felt. We weren't allowed to tear. We weren't allowed to express our emotions. Um, But the reality is, like, I had a lot of anxiety then. Didn't even know it. A lot of uh, trauma. Didn't even know it. You know, I didn't understand it. Um, But when I did that heroin, it was like, "Mm, I love this. This is what I like. This is for once I feel. Not too many times I feel like existing, but... That moment was like, right now it's okay to exist. It's okay to exist now. It brings to mind, I can't remember his name right now, but the, there's a French poet, and he, <coughs> and he talks about heroin, opium, actually. It was the same thing, heroin. And 
this is not verbatim, but it's something like this. It goes something like, uh, doing opiates is like for one moment, getting off of that bullet train towards death. And for one moment, not thinking about death and, and this is the part, not thinking about life. Right. And you just described that and you said, well, I don't want to die, but I didn't want to exist. And the one day that that existed for you was the day you were with mom. Mm -hmm. And the next day you're describing for me is the day that you did for the first time sure. heroin. Sure. I find that insightful. I find that uh, fascinating. Uh, I find that uh, tragic and beautiful because I think there's so much there we can fix as individuals, but more importantly, as a society, as a culture, as a group of people. And, uh, and yet we don't, and we are heading towards death on that bullet train, making existing meaningless. God, please go on. Thank you for sharing that stuff, but please go on. So, you know, you, you did that heroin. Tell me about a little bit about the opiate history from that point on. Um, anytime I can get my hands on heroin, um, I would. I would, you know, was, we had a lot of heroin in there, so it wasn't like hard to get it. It was real easy to get it. It was a uh, heroin was the most common drug that was in there at the time, in the '80s and the '90s in the penitentiary. Um, meth hadn't even really come out into the penitentiary that much. Um, it was primary was um, marijuana and uh, heroin, but I'd rather have heroin and alcohol, Pruno. Um, that time I'm making a lot of Pruno too. I mean, the COs are letting me make the Pruno, as long as we stayed out of their hair. Um, they didn't mind. Um, but I constantly was using heroin, um, and just constantly just snorted it, and just a great feeling. It was a great feeling, like warm fuzzy, and just I loved it. I'm smiling right now because it was like the best feeling I ever had. Did it cost a lot? Not really. Not because I was in, I was involved in the politics. I was um, it was up there. So, you know, a lot of times I, I took the role, um, a, a role that I prefer not to talk about. Um, sure. But I, I had a reputation because um, a lot of things that I had done, I built in there while I was in there. Mind you, I was uh, 110 pounds originally. I'm getting bigger as I'm getting older. I'm really, several years down the line. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really like working out every day hard, I'm doing everything. Um, just, but I have a lot of anger. And people were scared of me a whole lot. Mm -hmm. How was your relationship with family, any family during? No. My kid's mom, uh, Diane, um, she talked to me all the time, you know, as much as she could. But I didn't really have a relationship with my mom because she was in fear of her boyfriend, the one that testified against me to go to prison. Um, she didn't want to be in the middle of it, so I really didn't have much contact with my mom or my brothers at the time. Yeah, why, why not your brothers? They had their own addiction. Um, my brother, my oldest brother, John, was in prison, so was my brother, Matthew, was in prison. Um, my little brother, Gregory, at the time, was diagnosed schizophrenic. Um, you know, Two older been, brothers in prison, you are in prison, youngest brother, schizophrenic. Correct. And my mom um, basically was taking care of him at the time. Um, before that, he went to uh, jail, too. Um, but he was just doing meth, and he had a psychosis, and he never came back from it. And if you remember when I, earlier I said about my stepdad, the one that raised me was schizophrenic. So it, was, it ran in the genes, and, and he got him. 
you know, it, it, it hit them. So, but um, we all had our own problems. You know, it wasn't just me. It was my brothers that had that problem too, you know, in and out of prisons and just constantly. Okay, so we're several of you. Uh, from Delano, where did you go? From Delano, I went to um, I went to Wasco. Yeah, another prisoner. You were basically in my uh, circle of uh, service. Right. Uh, I took care of all these guys. Great. Right. You know? And then I went to Susanville. I don't know that one. I uh, went to Pleasant Valley. I know that one. I went to Avenal. Um, I went to my last prison I went to, which was uh, CRC, which is in Riverside, somewhere out there in Riverside called Norco. Yeah. Yeah, and that was my last prison I went to, and that's the one where I got locked up for two years in the hole. Will you tell us about that? Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. So, um, like I said, it was up there, and when I got there, I had to prove myself. And uh, Again, you yeah. got to do it every time. Oh, every time. And uh, so I had some guy who was smart mouth than me, um, beat him up in, in, in it's a hotel of California. It's called Hotel of California, and so where we live at, it's like dorm living, and it's all concrete, and so... I got the guy slipping and um, knocked him out and stomped his jaw out, broke his jaw, and two days later, ISU came up. ISU is in, like the best special investigators. They were over the COs and everybody. They came up, and, and my nickname at the time was Sharky, and they came up and they got me. And they knew me Can we by. ask why they called you Sharky? Just, I just attacked. Didn't care. I, no questions asked. I just that, I was very angry. I attacked. I liked fighting at that time. Oh, yeah, I would attack. And, and this developed in, while you were in prison? This developed when I was a child, too. Yeah, it was just yeah. survival. Yeah. This is what it comes down to, is just survival. Um, but they put me in the hole. This was called the shoe program. And I had to spend the next two years isolated to myself in, in a single-man cell in Cinchino called Palm Hall. And I had no books, no nothing, and I was losing my mind. They would bring me to the yard once a week in my boxers, that's all I would get to wear in my, my cell was just boxers. So I did this for a long time. And then finally someone slipped me a Bible. And I read the Bible three times while I was in. That's how bored I was. Or so you were locked down for 24 hours a day Correct. in a small room? Correct. And it's a, it's a tiny old cell. It's like one of those old dungeon cells. But they would come get me and sh I'd have to be shackled at all times. Shackled. No books, huh? Any no. TV, anything? No. So what did you do all day? In I did a lot of burpees. I, I made... Um, What's burpees? Tell us. Burpees is like where you military does it. The military yeah. does Navy SEALs and stuff like that. Uh, I started doing those every day. I uh, made dice out of toilet paper toothpaste. Uh, I played like 10,000, game 10,000. I started getting bars of soaps and I was making craving... I was like, you know, making Bibles out of it, like... You know, I don't want to say okay. I had little picks and stuff you're not supposed to have, but I had it hidden, and I just made like certain designs, and I, I loved it. I just stayed creative. And during that time, uh, you couldn't do any heroin either. Oh no, not that time. Well, did you have withdrawals and problems when you went in? Mm, not really, because I exercised a lot still. Did you? Uh, uh, okay, uh, so for two years. So this was straight up punishment. Do you think those two years in isolation did you any good? Did me more harm. Yeah, because I got released. When I got released from there, I still owe a year. If I was to go back right now, I would have to do another year in the shoe program because I still owe them a year. Um, when I got released, it was um, too much for me. It was too much. Being uh, outside. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was overwhelming because I remember I'm not seeing nobody. All of a sudden, I'm just seeing people. I'm just seeing like too many people and it was like, 
it was overwhelming. I a lot of anxiety. Because of the, you know, spending the two years in the hole, I feel like the last 10 years has been tough for me behind that. You know, psychological, just kind of what it did to me. What do you think that, I understand you did something and then this was, you know, crime punishment. But, yeah. but, but do you think the system actually believes that, you know, we, we are a culture, in theory, rooted in Judeo-Christian ethics. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... Do you think that's a right expression for the system to respond to what you did? As horrible as it is, I'm not justifying what I you do. I do. I'm not, I'm not going to. And if you do, tell me. Yeah, I, I, I agree with the system because um, you had to know me then. Um, I was off the hook. I was off, you know, I was just, um, it's not only with me, it was just like you got killers in there. They would just go in there and kill people. They have to lock them up. They need to or it's going to be chaos. They're not going to have control. And... Uh, uh, I take accountability for my part. Um, yeah, you know what I mean? I, I've always been accountable for what I, my part. I don't think it was, I think it was the right thing for them to do. You do? Yeah. Did you, uh, okay, for two years? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make a point against that. And uh, basically, uh, you know, it, it was, you know, you can sedate an animal. And, and I'm going to raise the question, how is that animal created in the first place? Mm. Where you have to go to these extreme measures. Right. And that, that would be my argument. I, and I, I understand and I respect your thought of, hey, that was justified. But when you're creating an environment where, you know, it's sort of like this. Uh, I'm going to give you a counterexample. Uh, remember that commercial about... I think it might have been during Nancy Reagan's time, uh, hmm. and it's well known and it's often quoted in different uh, pieces of literature. But the mouse, they were trying to show that cocaine is addicting. Correct. And it I shows do the mouse, that. right? And so the background to that afterwards, and I don't remember the details, so please don't, but if you can go look it up and see it, I believe it was either a Canadian researcher or maybe someone at Harvard, but I think it was a Canadian, kind of looked at that and decided that the pro protocol for setting up that study was wrong, it was bullshit. So what he did is he created the same situation with the water and the cocaine and all that stuff, except here's what the difference was. Uh, uh, the little mice were in a very positive, beautiful environment, in addition that there was a lot of interaction with other mice. Correct. And I think the outcomes were grossly different and and researchers call it with, with statistical significance and so forth essentially you didn't create addicts right because again remember we're going back to the idea of emil durkheim and suicide and what it means to have a social situation where people are coming up a certain way and he showed that if the situation's different in the first place you're not going to create those cocaine addicts and so I'll argue with you that if the situation was different in the first place, you don't create somebody that you have to put away for two years just to tame and sedate him. Now, the other argument someone might be watching this is saying, well, it's his responsibility. He did it. And we can go back and forth on this. And I don't have time to really uh, get into this issue about accountability and responsibility. It's not one or the other. Absolutely not. This is... This is what a politician does to sell something and give you a whole bunch of horseshit. It's not one or the other. You will always have a segment of society, a small segment, that will act out in ways that are absolutely inappropriate no matter what situation you put them in. Okay? Can I add something to that? Yeah, so I like what you said there. So 
if I could, if I could change it, if it was me in charge of all that, I would. Um, I think they need. You know, they call it CDC R rehabilitation. CDC what? R uh-huh. rehabilitation. That's a lie. Um, for people like that or in the hole, I think they should be having them do some education. Absolutely. That's what I think would have been the difference for me. What I they made it worse for me because even though I put myself in that position, I feel like they wanted to make sure I suffered as far as like isolation, nobody to talk to. You know, if a letter comes, you get a, a letter from your family member, it comes on a monitor. You don't get to touch the letter. Right. The shower comes to you, you know. So I'm going to stop you right there and point to you that when you can't touch a letter, that creates more loneliness mm-hmm. in the way Durkheim explains, and it creates more, I'm going to use this as sort of our poster child at the point we're trying, suicide. It's the lack of human connection. So the lack of human connection created someone who is extremely violent in their outward disposition, and you create more isolation mm-hmm. and displace them even further from social Society. human contact. I don't find anything benevolent or civilized about that. Correct. The smell, you know, when you get a letter, the first thing you do Absolutely. is smell the letter. Even if it's the mailman scent, you can smell it. You know, so you had a good point there. You're looking at this letter, but it's not even, you're not, it's not even really part of you. You're not even going to get to smell it. And, and interestingly, you just by accident brought up another point. As we move towards this technological society, right, most kids don't even know what a letter is. Mm-hmm. Well, this social milieu, this, this big crockpot of shit that we're kind of creating continue now there's nothing wrong with technology on its own again that's very different and if we can go down any one of these avenues and i believe i can foolhardily defend my position but every single thing we're doing although it could be used for positives we're creating more and more social isolation and loneliness Mm -hmm. and and i believe that and i believe that in our work environment I believe that in our family environment, and each one feeds into the other. And I believe there's a point, and there's no conspiracy. It's for somebody to make money, right? It creates better. Again, I'll digress for a second. I remember as a young, 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 young child, certain holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and these sort of uh, religiously-based holidays, everybody stayed at home, and you went to somebody's house, or it was a family event, and you didn't go anywhere. As I started to grow up, again, all of this feeds. And if I was younger and I was going to do a PhD thesis and I wasn't a medical doctor, I'd go back and get a PhD thesis in social theory and write about this. As I grew up older, all of a sudden I started to notice certain things. People are going to the movies after dinner. The young people are. And at first, I was when I saw people doing that, I was like, whoa, are they really going to ask people if they can leave? It's Christmas. It's Thanksgiving. This is about family, gathering, appreciation, goodness, mm-hmm. kindness, thinking about others and each other and the value of us in each other's lives and how we perceive society. Why is he going to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre and he's not ashamed about it? So I'm a little slow. It took me a few years and a few holidays to learn that this is actually the thing to do now. And I don't know nowadays if this is what people do. Weren't you are escaping isolation. Mm-hmm. When we use the term es- 
escape, and if you look look it up in Oxford English Dictionary, and its connotation and implication is you're escaping to go into the void. Mm-hmm. In reality, you are living a void, and you're using the term escape, mm-hmm. and you want meaning. Right. You want human contact. You want, th- and I, I think these are very important things that you're drawing. Well, a out. lot of guys that was in there with Doctor B um, were losing their mind because they didn't know how to escape. They were losing their mind. They were in their head too much, uh, and they were never the same. A lot of good guys that I knew years later um, have never been the same. Traumatic, that, huh? Yeah, yeah. Dave, this is fantastic, and uh, we're going on into a wonderful story here as well. But I think. The insight into all of it is what's really important. Um, it's such a great story. We are going to break this up into three episodes and maybe even four because I think it's just important for everyone to know your story. And hopefully, as I build my own thesis about what all of this means and what we can do eventually to solve it all, which your own particular story does a great job as a call to action for each individual and every human being and our society as a whole I think so we're going to follow up this with follow this up with another uh, 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 sort of an episode with David here thank you for joining me Dr. B on Reality Bites for this podcast uh, if you want to listen to the first episode of this wonderful story with David please find it in the link below the description of the podcast and you can see the first episode we also have other really cool episodes with some of the other folks that i deal with on a day-to-day basis dave happens to be uh really a colleague of mine we work together thank you again and i will see uh, see you next time